0: This is Living Philosophy with your host, Dr. Todd May. And for this episode, we're taking a deep dive into one of my favorite topics in the philosophy of technology. We are perhaps too familiar with smartphones, laptops, automated features of our cars, and artificial intelligence programs that run our home ecosystem. But would you group these kinds of devices along with simple machines like the pulley and the all too often underrated inclined plane? How about hammers, Roman aqueducts, or even the invention of fire. Historically speaking, these are all forms of technology in the sense that they are things that enable their human users to increase their own natural capabilities, to lift or move heavier objects, to build homes more efficiently and effectively, to find warmth and light in the cold reaches of night and winter. And yet to us, things like the hammer and the incline plane might just be historical artifacts, things we no longer really need to appreciate since we have other things to help us do, what we want to do. So are technologies just really tools whose purpose and capacity to do things merely change and increase over time? Or is there something more philosophically profound about technology? For example, ancient Greek myths like that of Icarus. Icarus, as you may recall, used the wings his father Daedalus constructed to take flight, and yet flew too close to the sun so that the wax holding the feathers together melted. Icarus perished. There are some philosophers like me who want to argue that there is something uncanny in the way technologies increase our capacity to do things. And that uncanniness lies in how the newly found power to do comes with costs we don't fully appreciate. Those costs can be many, from unintended consequences, as we saw with Icarus, to unintended uses, such as splitting the atom and the creation of the atom bomb. Regardless, there is so much to consider when taking a philosophical view of technology. And at the very least, it seems that we should avoid the assumption that as the users of technology, we are entirely in control. But don't take my word for it. Our guests for this episode are specialists in the philosophy of technology, and hopefully we can gain some insight and clarity into what technology is. Dominic Smith is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Dundee in Scotland, the United Kingdom. He specializes in bringing various philosophical traditions and disciplines into discussion with the philosophy of technology. Such interventions include the likes of phenomenology, critical theory, realism, and materialism. He is author of numerous articles on technology with a recent book with Bloomsbury Press entitled Exceptional Technologies, a Continental Philosophy of Technology, and a co-edited volume entitled Contingency and Plasticity in Everyday Technologies. But that's not all. Dominic is also a musician and plays guitar in a hardcore band called Kaddish. Dominic, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thanks ever so much, Todd. You know, thoroughly delighted to be here. Mark Kockelberg is Professor of Philosophy and Vice Dean at the University of Vienna in Austria. Among several advisory positions, he is former president of the Society for Philosophy and Technology and member of the high-level expert group on AI from the European Commission. He has numerous article and book publications, the most recent of which is The Political Philosophy of AI with Polity Press. Mark, welcome to Living Philosophy.
1: Thank you, Todd. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, and um, I'm equally looking forward to the conversation.
0: What is technology? Since we tend to understand technology relative to innovation, we might assume that a mobile phone is technology while a hammer is not. Is there some philosophical definition of technology that is trans-historically true? Dominic, I don't know if you would like to start us off.
2: Any trans-historically true definition of technology would um, almost by definition um, be highly trivial. So stated differently, I think it would be insufficient. I think that Heidegger gets at this when he highlights the limits of what he calls the instrumental and anthropological definitions of technology. So what he means by that is that we commonly think of technology as a means to an end and a human activity. And in broad terms, this is our common sense of technology. And of course, it holds for hammers and mobile phones, but it also seems highly trivial and uninformative. Now, the problem with Heidegger, um, as Mark and I know, in the domain of philosophy of technology is that Heidegger, Heidegger goes down the rabbit hole of thinking about a different account of truth, so not truth as correctness or correspondence of thoughts or propositions with the world, but rather in terms of what he calls uh, revealing or aletheia. This account's interesting, but as philosophers of technology such as uh, Don Eide have long noted, what it really reveals is Heidegger's true preoccupation. So he's not so much concerned with understanding particular technologies, He's much more interested in this high-level, general, ontological picture of truth. And that's very vexed and a a, a subject of a lot of contention in philosophy of technology. For my part, and I'm not sure where Mark stands on this, I'm less interested in what's necessary, true and continuous in technology. I'm much more interested in what's contingent, paradoxical and discontinuous. So I'm interested in thinking about how this uh, helps us think about new possibilities and for technology at, at a very granular level and um, rather than a, the abstract picture that Heidegger gives us. So if you think about your mobile phone and not just a mobile phone, but your mobile phone or your cell phone. And of course, there's an interesting difference there. Mark's done a lot of work on uh, technology and language, and I'm talking in British English, (laughs) whereas um, many of your audience might be thinking in terms of cell phones or smartphones, different conceptions of the phone. So it's true, but trivial to say that such a thing is manufactured and it is a means to human ends. What's much more interesting is to think about the paradoxes it involves. And so just two in particular your phone will likely be one of the most intimate things you have, but you won't think twice about upgrading it. So I suppose what does this tell us about the relationship of intimacy and disposability at our historical moment? And strictly speaking, it's paradoxical to refer to your phone as a thing and even as a phone, and because it clearly is more than one thing. it's an alarm clock, it's a diary, it's a clock, a computer, a megaphone, and the least of it the things that it might be. Functionally speaking, is a phone. It's always interesting to check the ratio of data you use in comparison to the number of calls you make on your phone. A lot of philosophers of technology are interested in this. For my part, I I suppose I think what's distinctive about the way I approach it, I'm interested in the micro details of very weird case studies. So I'm interested in what you might call modally weird technologies. So things that are failed, that are merely imagined or that are impossible. And I don't think, by the way, that the category science fiction is sufficient to account for such things. But what I would maintain is that all of those things, so failed, impossible technologies, merely imagined ones, they are technologies, and we need to, to rethink them on that basis.
0: That's very interesting. Before we move to Mark, I was just thinking of the time machine as an impossible technology, and then science fiction's not, not sufficient for that category. I, I want to go back a little bit towards the idea of contingency in technology and trying to avoid a, a grand general definition or determining laws that might be involved in how technology works or, as tools. Because I, I do see the, the the strength of that view. My own area in the philosophy of work is very problematic for the same reasons that once you try to define work, you always find an exception to that definition. The philosophy of art is very similar. And with work, it's a lot of people who do things as work also find them as a form of leisure. So this becomes an exception kind of thing. So it becomes a very daunting and, and futile task and um, looking more, just taking work as something that's empirically given might be a better starting point. Like, okay, look, we have these things that we think about as work, as technology. So let's think about those things. And looking at the contingencies are really interesting. And part of the problems with the way we refer to items of technology and how we relate to them, how we privilege one functionality over another how things are intimate, yet we're very much ready to upgrade with phones. Although I still have all my old phones because I feel like it's, it's a bit weird to get rid of them for some reason, even though the contents are totally on, in most cases, easily transferable. Is there some other larger motivation, either you explicitly recognize or don't fully recognize behind looking at these paradoxes? Is it, for example, to point out how blinkered we might be? how we are somehow fragile or vulnerable in terms of our own awareness and transparency or cognitive transparency, you might call it, or um, how we might have a naive consciousness. I'm trying to pull these different terms out that different philosophers within the the history of Western philosophy might refer to, or are you just content at sort of exploring different contingencies and allowing each contingency to maybe speak for itself or suggest something and that you have no ulterior or larger Systematic or programmatic design behind the kind of research you do?
2: The straightforward answer would go along the lines of what Foucault said about philosophy, you know, in terms of offering a toolkit of concepts and then other people use them. I wouldn't want to stop with that. You know, one way that I suppose the work that I'm doing could be appropriated is to innovate within business, you know, to, to think about the role of contingency and how systems adapt through contingency, you know, re- recursively. My own way of, of, of thinking about such things. And draws a lot of inspiration from a philosopher who I'm currently trying to write a book manuscript on, and his philosophy of technology, which is to say uh, Walter Benjamin, um, who I think has an implicit philosophy of technology that is superior to that of Heidegger's. Um, and one of the reasons it's superior is because it enables us to tell uh, highly critical stories. And I'm thinking about some of the work that Marx done, in particular on, on narrative and technology, and also your own work, Todd, on uh, recur in terms of how technologies enable us to to construct critical fiction. So your reference to the the time machine is in no way irrelevant. You know, for my part, I I would want to trouble the category of of science fiction because I think there's a a, a broader category um, hiding behind it. One of, of contingent technologies or paradoxical technologies or. Um, as per the title of my book, Exceptional Technologies, there's certainly a critical project at stake, which is very much kind of aligned with the approach of someone like Benjamin.
1: I agree with Dom that it's really interesting to to look at differences between technologies as simple tools versus like the technologies that we have nowadays. And, and I think digital technologies in particular, it's, it's not only that they're multifunctional and that they do so many things. I think they also, they, they do more than being a tool. There's a non-instrumentality that I want to say more about what you know, Dom said about Heidegger, but they also, um, for example, allow us to automate things. Some of them gain some kind of agency. And that's quite interesting because they are the, say the hammer. Uh, or the stone tool is really different from an autonomous robot or an algorithm. So I'm interested there to, to see what is the difference when you know what used to be tools become more like us in the sense that they do things on their own. So that's already an interesting difference. In both cases, however, I do think that they share that non-instrumentality Dom talked about and Heidegger talked about I think maybe you know although I really appreciate going to the empirical level and I do that myself in some ways and to some extent I do think there's something to save from Heidegger perhaps not his very particular view on on truth or his very particular ontology but what we can save is a view that connects technologies to the way we perceive things, the way we think about things, the way our worldview is shaped, and so on. And so when it comes to technology, I think it's a a mistake to, you know, if if going down to the empirical level means that you only look at the properties of a particular technology and not at the wider structural things and their narrative, of course, Dom mentioned is, is important. Language is important. Other structures, also social structures are important, I think. So I think when we talk about technology, we have to talk not only about artifacts, whether they're simple tools or uh, complex machines that do things by themselves, but also about their social context, uh, about the structure that makes possible their use. And so in that sense, some kind of ontological, you know, structural, perhaps one could use the term transcendental uh, approach i think it's very much needed because otherwise we have a too narrow view of technologies and what they do to us rather than only what we do with technologies
0: let me interject this uh thought or this controversy i guess you could frame it so philosophers like me often are very bipolar uh, this is a confession of a limitation on my part so very bipolar in the way they're thinking and uh, an example of this within the philosophy of technologies, I just tend to think about this divide between the natural and the technological. And then when I think about the human, I just sort of bracket everything out and think of, well, let's think about the human apart from mobile phones and whatever it might be. And we can, we can, we can sit in our armchair and do the, the theorizing and say, what, what are humans really like? What, and what's the ontological makeup of a human in terms of their existence, their properties, their capacities, et cetera, like that, things like that. And then so once you do that, which is, seems a very tempting thing to do, it's sort of Occam's Erasure, let's remove everything around us, let's talk about humans. Then the problem with trying to conceive of a technology is that we just think of it as other, as not human and therefore something that we are in tension with or have an antagonism with to some degree A lot of philosophers, technology, probably you and Dom um, included would be critical of that. I know post-phenomenology would say, look, you can't begin with that because our life world, we're already embedded in living with technologies. I guess my rebuttal would be something along the lines of, well, um, you can use that idea of the human as a critical reflection point to, to think about things in a different way. That's kind of beside the point. I just want to kind of give some context to that. But the other thing I was thinking about was not just the divide between natural and technological, but just the technological and anything else. And an an historical example came to mind when Mark was talking, the Amish community in the United States. So a lot of Amish communities, they cannot use things that are directly connected to the other public world that we live in, the secular world. So plumbing is a connection to that. So they can't have Conventional plumbing that ties them to the, the the grid of of waterworks, as it were. Electricity, obviously, is another one. But they can use cell phones because they're perceived as not being connected. So there's an interesting, and I'm sure there's a lot of nuances at the way in which they they speak their language, their native language, that helps to reinforce that. But I, I don't know if that that's an illustrative example that either of you want to comment on, but. It does, I feel like in my own way of trying to understand what's going on, this touches on what, what Mark is bringing in, in terms of we can't just think about the properties of technology and the kinds of things that technologies do for us. But we have to think about the larger narratives, um, the normative aspects of you know what we think is good and bad. And then also, in this case, it's going to be some kind of religious conception of the world and the way to exist.
2: I find it a very interesting example you've raised, Todd. I think it's consistent with the things that Mark and I have both said. I mean, one way of explaining that difference, you know, why accept the cell phone but not plumbing would be to think about the kind of qualitative leap that Mark alluded to that occurs with contemporary network technologies and the types of autonomous systems that they involve. So that's the consistency that I can spot in with, with Mark's position. The consistency with my position, I suppose, would be that it indicates that the cell phone is in some ways that kind of paradoxical object. It's more than simply one thing. And that renders it very difficult to place even within such a structured, grounded way of evaluating the world as the Amish approach, you know, that the life world is so well defined. That something like the cell phone or the internet
1: poses an adaptive challenge the example to me shows that in terms of uh, if we use post phenomenology one could say like yeah there, there are different meanings there's variation technology is not this universal thing in a way it's it's always you know it can sort of generate enable different meanings the way i have tried to conceptualize that it's saying like technology is always use and then use is connected to culture to forms of life So that shows again that, that this phone is not just this thing and this one thing and, and doesn't, isn't used in one way, isn't used in one context. Yeah. It's interesting in this case to see that it opens up different worlds and different cultural environments. For me, this is like. It's kind of, it gives hope in a sense that it also means that it is true that technology has some kind of development on its own, but there's no determinism, even with the same technology, it's possible to embed differently, to generate different worlds. So that makes me optimistic about, you know, what we can do with technology. And it, of course, also generates further questions about the precise relations between these wider contexts and the technology.
0: There's another instance of nuclear power that suffers from a narrative of, of being unsafe because I, the kinds of disasters and the longevity of those disasters that can occur. And uh, some philosophers who are in favor of, of addressing climate change, but also in favor of, of using nuclear power to some extent in, in terms of the transition period between a fossil fuel dominated economy to a more sustainable one. Um, have raised the issue that of in its history, nuclear power has has had many less human fatalities than all the the traditional fuels of fossil fuels. And whether or not that my point is not to raise that as a point, whether we should discuss the merits of that position, but I suppose there is another kind of way in which we can see a technology embedded within a certain narrative and how, at least now there seem to be a little bit more seeds planted in the social imaginary to maybe revise that as opposed to maybe several decades ago when there was a lot of protests against nuclear nuclear energy. And I guess there's other narratives. I don't know if we want to go down this route and talk about some of the more predominant narratives you find more interesting, but I know Mark uh, has looked at the narrative of cryptocurrency recently. And you know one of the hallmarks of the narrative, at least in my own experience, when I've come across dealing with cryptocurrency in, in, the, in the popular sphere is this idea of personal financial freedom that um, you can have a decentralized financial system where there's no middleman, the banker, um, clawing a profit away or approving you as a client who is eligible for a loan, that kind of thing. So those are another other examples of narratives that we might not be fully aware of that are definitely prominent within today's social psychology, as it were.
1: I think this example of cryptocurrency also illustrates how political technology can be, but in a way that I think we should think of it in a way that's non-deterministic and non-autonomous. So it doesn't mean that, for example, Bitcoin necessarily leads to decentralization. We can also have centralized states or companies that sort of try to use the technology and, and regulate the technology in a way that uses it for centralist purposes. But it is interesting to look at what this technology does as a tool and medium in terms of political organization what kind of structures again are encouraged rather than others and that has to do again with a sort of it's a less tangible kind of thing it's more vague it's not so easy to explain always but I think it is something that would fit with the kind of arguments that someone like Walter Benjamin or Marshall McLuhan have made about technology even if they are often interpreted as saying that technology has this kind of deterministic influence I still think it's worth unpacking what is this subtle influence in terms of lives of people and also in terms of the politics
2: of this technology it's a really interesting point there the the connection with with walter ben you mean a lot of students on courses that i teach make that connection between something like nfts and his work on the work of art in the age of mechanical reproducibility but there would be an extension of that argument in terms of the blockchain, which is quite interesting to think through. I just wanted to comment you know, on the other aspect of your question, Todd, and relate it actually to, to what Mark has just said, because what's striking, and this, this is just simply a, a comment, we've had philosophical, moral, economic, ecological arguments for decades now about fossil fuels. But if I'm thinking about my situation in the United Kingdom currently, what what has really brought uh, our dependence upon uh, oil and gas into prominence is a political issue, and it correlates with what Marx said about politics and and how politically charged technologies are. It's a political event that's a tipping point in our thinking currently with regard to that. So that's simply just to describe the situation, you know, in the United Kingdom where people are thinking about the cost of living crisis as it as it's branded quite rightly, you know. It's interesting that that political crisis has allowed us to rethink things like renewables, nuclear.
3: Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophy 2 your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence.
0: Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, the Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high tech's best known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical where do I fit in the grand scheme of things and the ethical how should I behave. Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today.
3: Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in Real Life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives, and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone, and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www the letter h the letter i the letter n the letter r the letter l .org that's www.hinrl.org
0: so there seems to be this unavoidable interrelation between technologies and for some reason Politics and I guess I want to consider politics not just in the sense of the stuff we hear in the news and whether or not we want to take sides as a member of one party or another. That's kind of a version of politics, but I'm trying to think of a more of a broader understanding of, of politics. And forgive me if I go down the Recurrian line here since it's the most familiar with me, but Paul Recur distinguished in, in the English at least. Um and it's been so long since I've looked at the French because I'm no longer a, a practicing academic. And I hope fellow Recurians will see this will not chastise me for this but he distinguishes between politics and uh i think it's la politique and le politique and the le politique the masculine is a broader form of what he calls the polity so there's politics which we're all familiar with democrats republicans tories labor party liberal democrats whatever and we all argue with each other and then the polity is this it's more of this has an ethical foundation because it's basically this natural yearning of a people to strive for the good And you know, Ricker is not naive. He says there is this yearning to strive to the good, but then there's also this paradox, which he calls the political paradox, where whenever we try to strive for the good and take and enact something or put something into legislation, whatever it might be, there's always some kind of bad effect that results from this. So there's you strive for the good, you want everyone to win, or most people to win. But the fact is when you act, there are going to be a lot of losers. And so you can never avoid this kind of paradox. and so he sees some kind of interesting tie between that desire for the good, and how politics emerges as the, the kind of arguing and the bickering that we're we're so familiar with. And I guess I, where I I would try to insert technology into that from my own perspective is that because technology does have this what I called earlier this uncanny ability to increase the capability to do things for some reason that gets so e- that's so easy to I guess insert or interweave with things of a political nature because you're trying to do things in the political realm, whereas and at a collective level, whereas I guess with the ethical realm where we try to do things that are good, it's usually at an individual level where we think about ethics or, or morality. How do I stand as someone with a member within my moral community? But the political, for some reason, gets bound up with this idea of historical, traditional, collective agency. And so the natural thing to move towards is a technology, whether people recognize it or not, in order to legitimate or proliferate one's own narrative. Those are just thoughts off the top of my head. I'd not really thought about that before. So if you find them totally untenable uh, for whatever reason, great. Um, but uh, what what were your what are your reactions to the relationship between politics and technology? And I know this is particularly Mark's specialization recently looking at the the questions and the problems of artificial intelligence.
1: Your point about there being these different levels—there's the ethical at a smaller level, and and then there's the the political, more collective and, and big. I think this kind of there's a kind of tension between these levels, and this tension happens, for example, in the current discussion about climate change and climate crisis, right? Because the question is what what to do about it. Is it just about me having to change my lifestyle, or is it something like is some kind of collective thing to be done Um, and i've been arguing more on the side of the collective thing because i think that it's misleading to think that just individual behavior can change everything and then the question is what is the role of technology there as you suggest i think technology comes in at that more collective level and i've been talking about in in my book the political philosophy of ai i suggest to talk about political technologies right and and then we can discuss what that means exactly but one thing it could mean is indeed using technology at a collective level however in a in a democratic and responsible way in order to change our our world in a way that's aware of what we're doing and that is intending things rather than just having technology being developed and then afterwards we shout that you know it's not good or it's problematic so Yeah, I think there's a lot of possibility to develop better political technologies in the sense of better tools and systems, but also perhaps the structures again, you know, the the institutions that are needed and the narratives that get us to deal with these huge and complex uh, global problems that we face today.
0: Well, let me begin with the ethical as an example. So there are quite a few philosophers of technology who are for technology, but then they argue that the only way we can have a, as Heidegger would call it, a free relation to technology is if we develop our own capacities as better human beings. And this is where I was at a conference recently and there were quite a few Aristotelians, and there was a one Kantian there. I believe it or not, I still go to philosophy conferences, but this, that was probably my last one. And the Kantian didn't like this thing that Aristotelians like to do a lot. And that's referred to our capacity to, to uh for practical reasoning, uh, in the Greek. And so Aristotelian's like, okay, you know, you know we can have that in this as long as we are capable moral agents who can exercise our practical reasoning. Then we can decide what's, you know, good and bad on a situational basis. And the canteen just, look, I'm, I'm tired of this. Whenever we have Aristotelians in the crowd, it always comes down to practical reasoning. And, and he says, I'm sorry, there's just, that's just a cop out, you know, because... One, I guess the worry is we just say that we have this thing called practical reasoning, but it just turns out we're just pretty bad at practical reasoning. So we and we fool ourselves into thinking that we're good moral deliberators or the frominos, as Aristotle would like to call it. So anyway, some philosophers of technology say, Yeah, technology is okay, we can have a free relation as long as we develop our practical reasoning capacities and decide whether or not something's good or not. And I have to, I'm an Aristotelian, but I have to agree with the Kantian here because I get so wound up with technology and I can see myself being wound up with it in good or bad ways. And it's like, look, there's something going on here where my practical reasoning is not allowing me to step away or gain that kind of critical distance that I'd like to think it would. So I want to use that as kind of an analogy to move to. Is that so with the political level? So if we have technologies that are either helping political initiatives or hindering them, is it that we need something that's external to technology to help? it develop? Or is there something that's, and it's not an either or, you could have a mix, I suppose. Is there something also within technology? There's something called a virtuous technology, which allows it to be open to political interaction. But also, I guess I would have to say it also prompts the political question or the ethical question.
2: What I find very interesting about thinking about the political question and the ethical question or questions is how they're dependent upon other questions to do with ontology. You know, so when we're thinking about who we are or what agency constitutes, I think it's vital. And you know, this is consistent with, very famously, Bruno Latour and how his thoughts in actor network theory have been taken up subsequently by post-phenomenologists such as uh, Peter Paul Verbeek or uh, Robert Rosenberger, Stacey Irwin. When we're thinking about the political, We have to recognize that technologies themselves are agents within an expanded conception of what Latour calls uh, the collective. And I think that's, that's a really important point. One potential response to that is that, you know, this kind of ontological recalibration takes us into territories of absurdity. You know, do we... Assign rights to technologies. It's not not that absurd an a, a question. We can think about you know the right to be recycled, <laughs> um, or the right not to be uh, disposed of. But you know I think that the really crucial point for me is that that type of reflection is not amoral or unethical or impolitical. It's rather the type of reflection that allows us to do better politics and better ethics. So it, I suppose you know you you talked there about. The possibility of virtuous technology todd that's very interesting you know, to think about you know how that could be baked into apps for instance that allow us to sleep in a particular way or to, uh, to have a particular diet and those are all very interesting but i think they're kind of remedial with respect to the broader question which is how we actually learn to rethink our conceptions of who we are and what constitutes agency and i think that Ultimately, is what technologies are problematizing for us at a political level.
1: I agree. We can learn a lot about this discussion about technologies for other bigger questions about agency and politics. I would like to come back also to this suggestion about virtuous technologies. I think there are again different ways this can go. So one one is the, the more ethical individual interpretation of virtue, and another one would connect more to a community and and collective questions and and that brings us back to aristotle as well because i think the modern philosophy has has really focused on on this individual reasoner and and philosophers love that because they see themselves as individual reasoners and they often think they can do better than other people uh, doing that, and of course, there's absolutely value in that. We need people who can reason well, and who can teach others to reason well. But reasoning can also be understood in a more communicative way, and uh, and in a in a way that that is about collective deliberation about the common good. And reason can also be supplemented or connected with wisdom, with the phronesis in Aristotle. So I think we can also shifted to an interpretation of aristotle that goes beyond this individual virtue and and individual reasoning and reasoning as such i think there are possibilities there and then the question is what does that mean for technology how can technology contribute to the common good for example and how can we guide technology in a in a wise way and what does that mean what kind of knowledge and experience do we need and who is the we and and how do we organize this rather than having the the sort of simplified picture of this one reasoner who has to decide about technology.
0: So picking up on some of the problems of traditional Western philosophy, where we just think about the individual, and we often think about this individual as having all these capacities to be able to reason and to do. Another idea uh, that philosophers love to entertain is this thing called the state of nature. And from this thought experiment, they try to think about what it means to actually be a civilized, ethical, political human being. And The state of nature thought experiment is imagine the state of nature where there are these humans, but they're not quite civilized or socialized in the way that we think of ourselves today. So uh, it's a kind of a state of warring against each other because uh, you're not sure what to think about the other human that you might encounter in the state of nature, whether or not they're going to try and dominate you or whether you can strike some kind of cooperative agreement with them. But the state of nature is essentially an uncivilized state of existence where we lack anything of any rights. There are no natural rights in a state of nature. It's the rule of, of the more powerful or the, the clever person. There's a lack of cooperation and there's a lack of freedom because you always have to worry about being dominated by the other person you might encounter in the state of nature. Thinking about that kind of philosophical way of going about understanding civilization and our previous discussion about technology and politics. Is there any way in which we can think about technology and thoughts about what it means to live in a cooperative, civilized society? How does, I don't know, technology contribute to a flourishing life in the sense that we think about having freedoms and rights?
2: The thing that I'd like to lead in with, if I may, is the state of nature itself is technology in the sense of that particular thought experiment is a is an artifact you know this is this is a big part of bernard stiegler's focus in his book techniques and time so i suppose the point here is that it can't refer to a literal historical pre-civilizational state of affairs it's a myth generating technology and so you see this in the big classical political philosophies you know um hobbes uses it to generate leviathan Rousseau uses it to generate this notion of the general will and Locke uses it to generate as a kind of property so I, I suppose those points made the point on flourishing is very interesting you know I, I think that certainly technologies can help us flourish i mean something that did strike me in this context is what you've just said about the state of nature makes me think of of a quite an extreme example of this which is benjamin bratton's recent book which was called the revenge of the real which was about the covid 19 pandemic and in in essence what he argues in that text is that Covid nineteen pandemic is a type of uh, super state of nature, and because it provokes us to think about the eruption of the real or the natural, if you want to call it, and how that affects not merely one model of civilization, but but many um, models of civilization. He goes to quite an extreme length in terms of how he thinks this should be dealt with, you know, and how technologies can play a role in helping us given that provocation and you know it's, it's not simply about masks and social or physical distancing what Bratton argues is that we need to make use of our already networked cell phones our computers to create essentially a, a globe-spanning form of data analysis and <laughs> um, so we need to stop thinking about ourselves as as individuals who have these items primarily as interfaces or, or facebook pages we need to think about them as as ways of collecting and transmitting data, and then of organising that data, whether it's movement, whether it's aggregates of people, incidences of virus transmission in a particular area. So that that was a very big and recent statement, controversial statement of how technologies can enable flourishing. And I think it relates to what you've said about the state of nature. Um, it, we don't have to perhaps think on that grand a level though, I mean, and here, You know, I know COVID is obviously a very controversial topic, but what I'm thinking about here is less that level that Bratton was operating at and and more just how each of us, I'm sure, thought about technologies in new ways and and related to technologies in new ways over the course of the pandemic. Statistically, we were doing more video calls. We were driving less. We were flying less. And it's interesting to think about how these habits have returned. (laughs) You know, it's almost like the revenge of the unreal. One can get into highly personal stories about all of that. I know, for instance, that my mobile phone, my cell phone, um, became a a way of actually writing things during the pandemic because my children wouldn't wouldn't allow me to sit at a desk and think. So I had to have a spare 10 minutes to write a little note to myself. Or, you know, I was thinking about how I would integrate walks into a daily regimen as part of lockdown in the United Kingdom. So i suppose i mean my general that's that's quite a long-winded answer but i suppose my my point would be that you know the state of nature is a philosophical thought experiment but if you think about something like the pandemic one can think about that in in those terms and also think about how that on all sorts of levels provoked each and every one of us to think about this question of technologies and flourishing when to turn off netflix when to use the phone for a different purpose when to turn off the phone when to have a quiz with the family you know all sorts of things.
1: I think the, the Hobbesian kind of thought experiment, uh, first of all, I think it's it's a very um, tempting and attractive way of thinking. It's very, uh, for a philosopher and a political philosopher, because you can do a lot with it. For example, I would use it to argue that states, if left by themselves, uh, can't really deal with climate change and we need actually some international organization or something to deal with that at the global level. So in that sense, I've, I think, the attraction should not be underestimated. But I, I'm very critical of it. And in my book, Green Leviathan, it starts with a Hobbesian idea that we um, use AI then to govern the world, right? So that's a, a kind of Hobbesian solution for, for the climate crisis. And then I criticize in the book the Hobbesian way of thinking and the, the idea of freedom that comes with it. And I argue that instead of assuming that. Human beings are inherently going to fight with each other and, and compete and everything. We could have a more optimistic idea, which I relate to, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and also Dewey and, and other people. An idea where we, we say like, actually we, we can cooperate and we can do something together to change things and freedom shouldn't necessarily be taught of in terms of a dilemma between absolute freedom laissez faire on the one hand and authoritarianism on the other hand we can actually have a positive idea of freedom not in isaiah berlin's concept of of self mastery but rather positive freedom in the sense of um, a freedom as empowerment freedom as capabilities, developing capabilities, and indeed freedom as as human flourishing. So there we close the circle and arrive again at um, flourishing, where we then have to think, for example, about AI, like how can AI contribute to that and give us that kind of freedom and enable us to live together in a good way. I think that's, for me, the direction we need to go. And, and the Hobbesian thinking belongs to a tradition to think about freedom and politics that's um, quite toxic, that has produced also a world that, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that, you know, the myth that the world comes to resemble the, the myth that we started from, especially in Western modern philosophy that challenge to, to think differently about politics and freedom i think that helps us also to think differently about the future of technology at the moment i think that's a, it's a good idea to connect these different approaches and different subdisciplines also in philosophy i think we need much more collaboration between the different subdisciplines in philosophy to tackle these huge problems both practical problems and theoretical problems
0: I love this idea of a a more intricate or interesting notion of freedom, a subtle notion of freedom, especially, you know, living in the United States where freedom just simply means, basically I have the right to do anything. It's like, Whoa, what kind of, where, you know, that's not freedom. That's tyranny. It might be your freedom, but it's tyranny for other people. And that becomes contradictory and you can't have a concept of freedom that is good for you, but bad for your fellow citizens kind of thing. But I do love this notion of freedom as Developing and connected to flourishing, because what that means, at least for me, is that in order to be free and flourish, you have to operate under certain constraints. Because you can't just flourish without constraints. And by constraints, I mean not only rules, because there are rules that benefit each and every one of us. And I'll be controversial in here and say, like mask wearing during a pandemic, as um, is good for the common good, but also other things like regiment, program, dom, as a musician will know. Uh, even in a hardcore band, you have to practice. And that's a constraint, That's but that allows for flourishing kind of thing. And then I'm going to get to the final question, but I just want to add in because the current work I'm doing, it's it's apparent that AI, the market for AI integrated or interfaces within everyday life are going to increase in terms of the market capture by an immense proportion within the next year. And they're going to be integrated in ways that we hadn't thought about before because Well, at least the idea of all the projects I've seen out there, the way they're, they're trying to use blockchain technology to avoid, um, the barriers of, of cost and, um, centralization, those kinds of things. So I think just more to the point of we really have to think about technology and our, how we are, who we are, how we flourish in terms of how AI is integrated with us. And I know that might be a scary thing for a lot of people. And one of the topics we didn't discuss was, the problem of agency in AI and whether or not we have to worry about Cylons and robot wars, but maybe it's some other follow-up to this podcast. We can talk about that. So in closing, I'm going to ask you the same question. It's not a question I notified you about in advance. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, but if you have to recommend one particular book, it doesn't have to be about philosophy of technology, but, and it doesn't have to be philosophy, but one book that you think would be just a book that everyone should at least try to read because they would gain something from it, whether it's insight or just a new appreciation about some aspect of life. You can say my book. Or you can't quite see it here, but I just you know published a book not too <laughs> long on science fiction called Pig Terrorism. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Todd's book, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I was thinking about Stuart Russell's book Human Compatible. Um, in the context of the, the discussion that we didn't have on AI and agency. And I think that's a fascinating book in the context of, it's what's delightful about that book is that it's um, written by putatively a non-philosopher, a computer scientist that is, at Berkeley, but someone who is incredibly philosophical in his approach to the problem of AI. I'd recommend that book. I was also thinking about a connection between that book and a a beautiful article by the feminist philosopher Carol Pateman in her book The Sexual Contract, where she analyzes the genesis of precisely the Leviathan of Hobbes. I was thinking about this in the context of of Mark's response to your your previous question, and it struck me that there would be a very interesting article to be written that looked at the account of AI that's offered by someone like Stuart Russell and the account of the kind of masculine Genesis myth that is
1: is criticized by Pateman in that text. We could uh, read some classics like Aristotle again, maybe because I think that there could be something to learn. I also personally recommend reading for philosophers of technology to read some political philosophy. I think Rousseau is really interesting when we're, we've been talking about the state of nature and he has this different view that, than Hobbes, you know. Um, for example, the, the Emile is, is quite uh, an interesting classic for that purpose. Apart from that, I think they're like, nowadays there's like a lot of popular books that try to sketch a big picture of humanity and technology and of course harari is one of these popular ones interestingly in the meantime there have been criticisms of harari and there has been more discussion of this i think it's a good thing i think it's good to also look at grand narratives about humanity i think they can help us to make sense make sense of humanity makes sense of technology. So I think to, to enter into that discussion by reading some of those books might also be a way to get some more context for talking about technology.
0: Dominic and Mark, thank you for being guests on Living Philosophy. And we look forward to seeing more of your work and research in academic journals, books and the popular
1: sphere. Thank you, uh, Todd. Thanks so much, Todd.
0: If you would like to know more about the research and publications of Dominic and Mark, please visit the podcast blurb for social media links and their websites. If you found this discussion insightful and informative, please share the podcast link. We could use more philosophical discussion in our lives. I'd like to thank our sponsors, philosophy to you Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and the Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the philosophy 2 website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcasts and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.